Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Jeffrey J. Niehaus. He is Senior Professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he has taught since 1982. He got his Ph.D. in English Literature at Harvard. Uh, before that, he has a little book out entitled, When Did Eve Sin? Welcome, Professor Niehaus. Thanks. Glad to be with you. All right. Well, your focus is a pretty narrow one. We have a few verses in Genesis. Uh, why, why the sort of microscopic, uh, in, in, intense focus? I mean, I, I like it myself. Maybe that has to do with your, your English literary background where, you know, back, back, uh, back in the days when it was really important to dissect poetry down to the word. Is that, is that where, you, where you think you might have gotten your focus? Well, I think uh, actually it's, it's more, if I may say so, it's a matter of gifting. And so the gifting that I had in, in a literary direction, uh, which I was aware of and uh, was developing before I came to know the Lord, I came to know the Lord in the middle of that doctoral study at Harvard, and that's another, that's another story. But uh, that sort of uh, ability plays into understanding the Bible, of course, because the Bible is literature after all. Um, and uh, so uh, once I did come to the Lord, I became convicted that I should go on and prepare for ministry. So I went to Gordon-Conwell uh, for the MDiv degree. And uh, after about a year there, they were saying you should go on and uh, study more and uh, come back and teach here. So that's what I ended up doing. But uh, one of the most influential professors I had at uh, Gordon-Conwell was Meredith Klein. And uh, I, it was very vivid to me uh, how he talked about uh, Eve's uh, path towards taking the fruit. Um, and he uh, gave the uh, view, that, which I later learned was a very standard, very old view, not only in Protestantism, but back into the older Jewish interpreters, that uh, when Eve answers the serpent's question, um, she's already sort of going adrift because she's adding to what God said. You remember in Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam, you don't eat the fruit of this tree. Um, and then in uh, Genesis uh, 3, when, um, when Eve is answering the serpent's question, serpent asks, well, did uh, God say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, he's actually quoting God verbatim, except he adds the word not, because God had earlier said you may eat of any tree in the garden, except for this one. Um, and Eve, uh, or she's not yet named Eve, she's, that's the name Adam gives her after the fall. 
um, in Genesis 3.24. But um, so I, in the book, I re, as I explain that in the book, and hence I refer to her normally as the woman before the fall, but uh, she answers the serpent correctly and says that, uh, no, we may eat of the trees, but there's this one tree we may not eat or touch it. Um, and Klein was saying, well, you see, she added the words or touch it, so she's already going astray. Well, that made sense. Uh, that sounds very plausible. Um, and it was only a long time later, years later, that it dawned on me that that really couldn't be right, because if she's adding to what God said, she's already sinning. But Paul, uh, in First Timothy 2, says that the woman being deceived became a sinner. And that's exactly what happened. The serpent deceived her, and she, she agreed with him, and she took the fruit. But when he asked the question, did God say you may not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden, and she answers and apparently adds to what God had said, you can't argue that the serpent had deceived her at that point. She's not in a state of deception. She's just answering the serpent's question. And so uh, then the question arises, well, okay, what's going on here? Because it does seem that she's adding to what God said, and yet the whole Bible never faults her for that. God himself, when he shows up and uh, and judges her and Adam and the serpent, never uh, rebukes her for adding to what he said, which would have been the first sin. Uh, he says, uh, uh, you know, she she took the fruit, and so she's culpable for that. Um, and so uh, I thought, okay, well, what would explain this? It could be that she's actually adding information in Genesis 3 that uh, God had said earlier, but it just wasn't reported in Genesis 2. So in fact, God had told Adam, you may not eat of this tree of this fruit or touch it. But that part of it, or touch it, was not reported. So this is where the literary gifting, as I would put it, comes into play. Because I thought, okay, so this is a this is a style of reporting in which you get some of the information in the in the first account where it's a sort of third person account. God is telling Adam that you don't eat this fruit. That's all third person. He tells him that you don't do this. But then in Genesis three, you get a first person recounting of that, um, where the woman says, um, "We." may eat of this fruit, but uh, any fruit, but not this tree, and we may not touch it. So I thought, okay, is there any place else in the Bible where that happens? And, of course, it turns out that there are several very good examples of that, which I explore in the book. And the, it's a set, And you know, I, when I would teach this to my students, I'd tell them, you've got to understand, I don't really care what the answer is here. Um, all I care about is getting the right answer. Um, and so, you know, it's like once one student told me, he said, one thing I like about you is you don't have any skin in the game. You know, you're not here to maintain some position because somehow uh, your reputation depends on it or somehow it's part of a, an established position and you feel you've got to uphold it. You just want to understand what the Bible says. And that's the way I think we should all approach Scripture. But that's that's essentially what got the book started. Okay, well... You said something that I wonder if we could pursue a little bit. Would you like to talk about this experience or this turn where you said in graduate school in English, which by the by the 70s at Harvard was a prob probably pretty strongly secular uh, place uh, that you came to know the Lord and, and, and changed. Do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
you know, when I was there at Harvard, I uh, I went there from Yale. I was an undergraduate at Yale and uh, um, went to Harvard, and it was a very good English department. Um, and but I always had a sense about Harvard in general, the whole environment. There's something wrong here. Um, and uh, so anyway, I was uh, in the course of studies. I had to prepare for a Ph.D. oral exam, uh, which covered which lasted three hours, and it covered all of English literature. <laughs> uh, so from like from Beowulf on, um, and uh, so I just closeted myself for nine months to sort of bring this thing to the birth. Um, and I did fine, and I realized that I only needed to studied about half as much but so it was a very unhealthy time though you know I was just complete I cut myself off from everyone I just studied well um, okay so that was in late November I went down to Florida to join my parents uh, just north of West Palm Beach for a long Christmas holiday I was there for about six weeks when did you when did you take your oral exams this was in uh, 1972 and and in November in November. Okay, yeah. so you, and you did fine on those, then you go down to Florida for a little break. little break, yeah, because at that point, once you've done that, you don't have any more classes. All you have to do is write your thesis. And I was writing a thesis on the English romantic poet, Percy Shelley. Um, and my interest in the romantics, I mean, I had a, a sort of metaphysical leaning, you know. I thought, by this time, I thought there was a god, but I didn't have any idea about what he really was like. But anyway, I was there, and toward the end of the time with my parents, my mother uh, had said, you know, she, they both grew up going to church, and I, we went to church when I was a little boy, but uh, it kind of tapered off. And so she said, I feel like a pagan if I don't go to church once in a while. So we went to a Baptist church in West Palm Beach. It was a big church. It was pastored by a man named Jess Moody. Uh, who later went to California to join a church, another church. But he got up in the pulpit and he said, um, I felt like I, uh, you know, I had a message prepared for today, but I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning and I felt the Lord laying another message on my heart. So he shared it. And it was a sermon about the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. How you read again and again, Moses hardened his heart, or rather Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then finally you read God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point of the sermon was you could continue to say no to God until you'd reach a point of spiritual no return, and he would confirm you in that. Well, everything in that sermon spoke to me. I don't know what else God was doing with that. Uh, he typically does a lot with just one thing. But um, anyway, I went home the next morning. I got up, had breakfast, and you may know how it can be in Florida. Um, you have a thunderstorm, and it just it's there and then it's gone. It passes over quickly. And we had one. And I was looking out the window uh, after breakfast uh, in the backyard uh, and the storm passed away and the sun came out. And uh, I saw the, the, you know, the sun sparkling on the raindrops on the leaves on the kumquat tree and that sort of thing. And I sensed the beauty of nature and I, the earth smelled to me with a freshness I hadn't known since I was a little boy. But beyond that, I sensed that there was a, a much greater beauty and power. And I didn't know what that was. Well, later that afternoon, um, and I'll wrap this up soon, but I just want to give you the, the, as big a thumbnail sketch as I can here, uh, because it is the Lord, after all. Um, I had an old friend come over who was going to uh, uh, college at uh, Florida State, and um he uh, he had he'd been on psychedelic drugs, but he turned to the Lord and turned off the drugs. 
Um, and I told him what had happened, and he said, well, it sounds to me like you've been touched by the Holy Spirit in some way. He said, you ought to cherish that. So, well, okay, I don't, I don't know what to think of this, you know. So, but I went back to Harvard and started my PhD, my thesis work, and I met the woman who later became my wife, Maggie, who was over from England. She thought for one year um, in applied math, uh, and she, she stayed and did a thesis on modeling the mathematical modeling of weather fronts. Um, and, you know, I read the first page of her thesis once, and I realized, okay, I know the English language, and I can understand most of this page, but after that, forget it. Um, but uh, anyway, we dated for nearly a year, and we broke up a couple times and got back together um, because she was a Christian, but I wasn't, and it didn't look like I was going anywhere in spiritual terms. And so, although we did talk about spiritual things, um, and... Uh, turned out there was a, a couple that she knew from England. They'd gone to Oxford with her, and they were over here studying math as well. And they had a high tea, which is, you know, uh, one Sunday afternoon, tea and uh, biscuits and cheese and all that sort of thing. And they invited us, and she couldn't go, but I did. And uh, I started talking with the woman, and they were into transcendental meditation, and turned out that they had an open marriage uh, and so I took her out to lunch at the Harvard Faculty Club later that week. And suffice it to say, we came very close to starting an affair, but uh, I couldn't go through with it. It was as though every fiber of my being was telling me there's a moral order in the universe and what you're doing uh, goes against it. And this was a big change for me because in the past, this sort of thing would not have been an issue at all, um, having an affair with someone else's wife. But uh so a couple nights later, I took Maggie out to a restaurant in uh, Boston, and uh, we were heading back toward the subway, and it was a cold, blustery December night, and uh, I just stopped and took her by the shoulders, and I said, Maggie, I guess I'm a Christian. <laughs> and she said, hallelujah, brother. <laughs> uh, and uh, to, to try to put it into words, you know, in effect, I, I, my attitude to the Lord was, Lord, uh, I, by outward measure, my life looks very good. I'm getting this Harvard doctorate. I can teach and take summers off and have a good life, you know. But within, I was absolutely miserable. I don't know if I would have committed suicide, but it was pretty bad. I just felt pointless in life. And so I said, this is where I've got myself, so I just turn it all over to you. Um, well, I started reading the Bible every morning and uh understood more about the faith, and uh, I was certainly belonging to the Lord at that point. Uh, I went back home for the summer to my parents, and they saw the change in me, and they wanted to know what was going on, and so I shared with them, and within a year, they both came to the Lord. So that's that's what happened, um, and of course, I, you know, as Paul says, whatever condition you're in, uh, stay there, uh, fulfill it, and so I did. I finished my doctorate. And by that time, I knew I should go on for uh, what I thought would be pastoral ministry. So I went to uh, Gordon-Conwell because in Florida I had met a pastor who was a Presbyterian pastor who was a Gordon-Conwell graduate. So that's one long and the short of it. That's how I ended up where I am. All right. But you, you did finish the English Ph.D. I did. You wrote your dissertation on Shelley, that atheist. Yep. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I mean, he, you know, he was, uh, he was an interesting guy. I, I, I don't think he was a great poet, although he had some gifting. But I think he was a, a very, he had a remarkable mind. I mean, he, he thought you shouldn't read any poetry or literature unless you're going to read it in the original language. So he taught himself German, and, you know, he was, uh, he was a very bright guy. Uh, and he tried to put his ideas into poetry, um, but uh, he 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 believed in some kind of spiritual reality. But he never was a Christian. Uh, okay, well, but back back to the book. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, a few terms uh, you call important figures in the Bible quote, quote covenant mediators. Uh, what do you what do you mean by that? Okay, that's a good question because a lot of people, in my experience and reading, use the term more broadly than it would be helpful to use it. So a mediator is somebody who uh, stands between one party and another to enable their transaction, to mediate a transaction between them. Um, and uh, that's, that means if you apply that term strictly to prophets, you end up with those prophets who were the ones through whom God gave covenants. Um, scholars even, people often talk about prophets in general like Isaiah or Habakkuk as, as mediators, um, but they're not covenant mediators in this strict sense, and so I like to reserve the term for this. So God gave covenants through, what, Adam? I would argue not everybody thinks so, but Adam, Noah... Uh, Moses, uh, or rather Abraham, Moses, <clears throat> David, and then finally Jesus, the, the last and greatest of them. Um, and so I, I, ref I limit that term, the use of that term, to those prophets through whom God gave covenants. Now, there are other prophets too, but they arise mainly <clears throat> excuse me, under the Mosaic Covenant. And what do they do? they sadly have the role of uh, bringing lawsuit against God's people because they've broken the law. And so they are better termed not covenant mediator prophets, but covenant lawsuit messengers. And in fact, the covenant lawsuit form is a well-understood genre in the Bible, and it even shows up in, with uh, the Hittites and the Assyrians, um, as I pointed out in, a, uh, in my Amos commentary a long time ago. So that's the distinction. A covenant mediator prophet, those are the big ones, the ones through whom God gave covenants. Covenant lawsuit prophets or messengers are the ones who have the sad task of bringing lawsuit against God's people because they broke the law. And that's, of course, chiefly in the Old Testament because that's where you have the law. There are prophets in the church too, right? Paul writes about prophets and how you manage that gift. Um, but they are not prophets who mediate covenants. Another term that you use is biblical historiography. You actually call it a unique form of historiography. What characterizes biblical historiography? Well, um, first of all, it does have some things in common with ancient Near Eastern historiography. Um, and the thing it has in common is that all of that, so when I say ancient Near Eastern, I mean Assyrian or Hittite, for instance. Um, the thing it has in common with them is that the, the history is covenant-based or treaty-based. Um, and scholars tend to use those terms. In Hebrew, it's the same term, berit. 
um, but for a divine human covenant, they use the term covenant, and for a secular treaty, uh, you'd, you'd use the translation treaty, not covenant. Um, although, again, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Uh, same word in uh, Greek, to diatheke. But um, so uh, um, the thing that they have in common is that um, the Bible is about the great king, God, and the covenants he has made with people. And that's, that's all of biblical history has to do with that. That's what it's all about. And indeed, most of the history in the Old Testament is about how that plays out, how God makes, for instance, the covenant with Moses, and uh, then how people break it, and how, how life under the covenant proceeds. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Even the Psalms are covenantal literature because they are about life under the covenant God. Um, the Assyrians, the Hittites, for instance, there too you have treaties, uh, and then you have the vassals break the treaties, and so the Hittite emperor or the Assyrian emperor has to go out and reconquer the rebellious vassal and punish them and bring them back into the empire or into the kingdom, if you will. So that's what they have in common. Uh, the thing that is unique is that in the Bible, God is the king. It's not some human king. And uh, they, and so the and the uh, another unique thing is that you have these covenant mediators that we've talked about. Um, and another unique thing is what has been called um, the uh, theophanic uh, gatung or genre or form where God shows up and talks to people and reveals things to them. That happens a lot in the Old Testament. You never find anything like that in the ancient Near East. Um, and another unique thing, which I've, uh, and I'm not the only one who's written about that. I wrote about that in God at Sinai, but uh, as I point out in the book, there have been couple other scholars who wrote about that before me. It's a well-understood thing. Um, and so one more really unique thing is the life of the covenant mediators. Um, the, and as I've outlined in the book and in the biblical theology I wrote, um, the life of Jesus has a lot of similarity in its pattern to the life of Moses. Um, for instance, a great example, of course, is that in both cases you have a king who tries to kill the child. Now, in Pharaoh's case, he just tries to kill the male children because he's afraid they're going to proliferate and maybe leave and join their enemies. He doesn't understand that among those children he wants to, those male children he wants to have killed is the covenant mediator, Moses. Um, but the devil does understand that, and I think the, the Pharaoh was a tool in the devil's hands. So you come forward to Jesus when he's born, um, Herod, uh, learns that there's this king who's been born, and he feels threatened. So he sends out the order to kill the children in that village. Um, and so he has a little more of an understanding, but even he doesn't realize that this is going to be a covenant mediator who, in a real sense, wouldn't threaten his kingship at all. So he, too, I think, was an instrument of the devil. The devil only knows what God lets him, lets him know, you know, that somehow he knew that Moses and Jesus were who they were, and he tried to get rid of them. And, of course, God prevented that. So, but there's the patterns of those lives are very similar. You have the law giving, uh, and you have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of telling you more deeply what the law means. And you have the signs and wonders Moses does, and you have the signs and wonders Jesus does. Um, and you, you, so you have the and you have the mediation of the old covenant, and you have the mediation of the new covenant by Jesus' death and resurrection. So a lot of parallelism. 
And that's important because, you know, uh, biblical scholars have sought high and low for some kind of analogy in Greek uh, biography for the life of Jesus, and they don't find any really comparable genre. Uh, But the comparable genre is Exodus. The comparable genre is the life of Moses. Um, And so that's historiography in the form of biography, and it's quite unique in the whole ancient world because the whole ancient world had a few biographies, but none of them were covenant mediators, mediators of covenants from God. Um, so in a nutshell, that's, those are the essentials of that. Well, let's come back to one, something you said about Eve, uh, about her misquoting God. Now, is this a misremembering of what God said? If it's, uh, if it's just an, an imperfect memory, do we call that a sin? I mean, are, are, are there cognitive flaws that, that weren't moral flaws that Adam and Eve could have before the fall? Well, there are a couple of issues there, and first of all is what does one understand by sin? And I think the truly definitive statement about sin uh, is given to us in Romans fourteen twenty three, where Paul says, whatever's not of faith is sin. Okay, so what is faith? <laughs> And there, I think, you have to go back to the Hebrew word, amen. Um, amen in Hebrew means it is so. Um, and uh, the, the verb for believing in Hebrew is a causative form, which would translate to affirm that it's so, or make it so, or agree that it's so. And so faith, I think, biblically understood, is agreeing with God's being and doing agreeing with who God is and what he's doing. And so in that sense, Jesus operated in perfect faith because he said, I do what I see the Father doing. The words I speak aren't my own. They're the words the Father gives me. And faith doesn't preclude seeing, incidentally, because even in Hebrews 11, where you talk about faith being the, the, the substance of what is unseen, uh, the author also says that the, you know, the patriarchs saw what was ahead, but they didn't get that. They didn't get there yet. They didn't, you know, the heavenly city wasn't for them yet. So faith can involve a form of spiritual seeing, I think, and Jesus epitomizes that. So if faith is amening God, and whatever's not of faith is sin, then whatever we say or think or do that is not in line with what God would have us being uh, saying or thinking or doing, any of that is sin, whether it's we think of it as some moral thing or not. Um, And that's really important to understand. So if Eve is adding to what God said, um, even though, shall we say, in Genesis 2, he didn't say, by the way, don't add to this, even if she's adding to what God said, she's out of line with God. And in fact, if she's adding to what God said, she is saying something that's not true. So she's certainly not amening God. Uh, Does that make sense? Uh, certainly, yes. Okay, so let, but let me go back to the other part of the question then, um, about the memory. Um, I had a student bring up this question once, and, and uh, well, you know, she's human. She just misremembered or didn't remember clearly. Um, well, what she said is still out of line with God, whether it was a, a fault of memory or not. So it's sin by definition, by Romans fourteen twenty three, whether it was misremembering or not. However, I think if she could misremember, that raises another kind of problem, because it means that God made her faulty. 
he made her and Adam too, perhaps, because some people think Adam, you know, told her, added that and told her the wrong thing, which is even worse because then the sin starts with Adam, um, and that's not reported as such in the Bible. But if he, if she had a faulty memory, then she was made capable of making mistakes, capable of, uh, and, and that, you know, capable in that sense. It was built into her that she would, that she would remember wrongly and thus enter into sin. Um, and uh, as I point out in Genesis 1:31, God looked at everything He created, including the man and the woman. Um, because, you know, in Genesis 1, 26, 27, he creates the two of them. He looked at it all and said it's very good. Not just good, but very good. Well, if it's good, it can't be faulty. I mean, God himself is called good, same Hebrew word. So I think you can't say, because if, if, she, if she was created capable of misremembering, then uh, God kind of created her imperfect, not, not completely good. So what God did do was create her, I think, with a perfectly good memory, but sadly uh, with the capability on her own of making the wrong choices, um, which is what she did. Um, so that's, I mean, that's something I go into quite a bit in the early going in the book. But I think, you know, if if God created her with a faulty memory, he he virtually created, he virtually guaranteed that she was going to flub up um, and so the problem really lies at God's doorstep uh, in the first instance and not hers. So it's a big problem, and I don't think that's a good answer to the, no, to, no. the, to no. the question. Well, well ha, now, you say the serpent immediately twists God's words in response. What, how, how does he do that? Well, um, as a, you, at the very first thing when he, when he asks her... Um, did God say that you may not eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden? Well, uh, if you look back in Genesis 2, God said every one of those words, every single one of them, except for the not. And so the serpent took everything God said and added the word not, and so basically turned it on its head. Did God say, because God said you may eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden, the serpent says, "Did God say that you may not eat from any tree, fruit of the tree, of, uh, fruit of any tree of the garden?" Um, and this, I mean, I suppose, you know, this is, uh, according to Revelation twelve nineteen, this is the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. So the serpent is Satan, and how he does that, I don't know. But that's not. We don't have to get into that. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, when he does that. Um, he's pretty smart, you know. He's a pretty clever being. Um, and so his goal is obviously to bring her down and bring Adam with her, because I point out, when he addresses her, he uses the plural forms, which doesn't necessarily mean that Adam was there looking on and doing nothing, uh, as some translations would suggest. But it does mean that he wants to bring them both down. Um, and so uh, he's asking a question that he knows she's going to answer in the negative. Of course she's going to say, no, God didn't say that. Um, and uh, so she makes her answer. But the problem is that she, she has, he has engaged her. And so he's able to follow up with his contradiction of God. Well, no, 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 God, you know, God, God really doesn't have your best interests at heart because he knows that when you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like Elohim, 
which could mean like God or like the heavenly beings, angels. Um, you're going to be knowers of good and evil. Um, and so it's, in other words, his, his, his posing the question in the negative, which is a twisting of what God said, is his way of luring her into the conversation so he can then go to work on her, and he succeeds. Last question. Uh, when does Eve sin? When does she sin? Ultimately, you know that's a real mystery because, because I mean, let's <laughs> the the manifest sin, the sin that takes the form of action, is that she takes the fruit and eats it. So absolutely, she sinned then, uh, and that's the problem, as God points out later in Genesis three. And but then you have Paul's statement in First Timothy two twelve that the woman being deceived became a sinner. Um, so I think if, if, if our understanding of faith is amening God in everything, then once you enter into a state of being deceived, your thinking is already sinful, because you're already thinking things that are not true, that are not true of God, that are not true, absolutely. So um, a state of deception is a state of being in sin, because it's sinful thinking, it's wrong thinking, it's thinking that is not in line with God. But then that, that thought takes action, and so there's the, the physical action of sin. And that's why I think Hebrews says, you know, don't let your hearts be hardened by the deception of sin. So if you're, de- if you're deceived, then your hearts are hardened, and then you're moving in the direction of Pharaoh, right? He hardened his heart, uh, and he certainly was a sinful guy. So uh, it's, it is a subtle question, but I think we can, that we can put a pretty good answer to it. You know, that there is such a thing as sinful thinking, and already that's, that's sin, that's bad. Um, but then that leads to sinful doing, um, which is what happens with her. Professor Niehaus, thank you for joining us. The book is When Did Eve Sin? The Fall and Biblical Historiography. Yes, thank you. It's been a great, great being with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.